you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing to preach through the gospel of Mark. And as we get there, I'm going to ask you this question. What is the most important thing you do in life? What is the most important thing that you're doing in your life? There's a lot of important things I'm sure that you're doing. Uh, some of you get up and go to work, and that's important because you've got to provide for your family. Some of you maybe stay home and you're with your kids or you're investing in other areas, and that's important work. You've got to do that. Perhaps the most important thing you do is uh, the example that you set for others or the integrity that you pursue, uh, the ministry maybe that you've committed yourself to. Is that the most important thing you do? There are a lot of important things that you're doing with your life, I'm sure, things that you value and you put at the top of that priority list, and they're all good, uh, but I want to kind of pause and wonder together with you as we look at this text if maybe there's a more foundational thing, something that's even more urgent in our lives than all these other activities that we've committed ourselves to, to that demand our attention. Uh, there is something, I believe, that after we read the text will become pretty clear that must happen and be continually happening prior to all the other important things we do. This thing must be happening in our lives the most important thing that we will give ourselves to will not be about our achievements, the goals that we're setting or hitting, the accomplishments we set out to, uh, to do. Uh, in one sense, this one big thing that is the most important thing is really not an activity at all. According to our text, this one thing, how you do, whether you do, this one thing is going to reveal the condition of your heart, this one thing, the state of your soul, your eternal and eventual destiny is revealed by how you do this one thing. We're in Mark chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 20, and I want to see if you can tell what the one thing is. It'll come out, and we'll, I think you'll notice it by the time we get to the end. Chapter 4, verse 1 and again, he, that's Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endure it for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Did you catch it? Repeat it again and again. Jesus starts it out with it in verse 3. Listen. And then the whole explanation of the parable of the second half where he's talking about each soil and what it does with the seed that's sown in it. What is it referring to? It's referring to people who hear the word and how they hear the word and what happens once they hear the word. What we are told in this text, what is critical for each one of us to understand, what is the point of this parable is how you hear the word is revealing, is demonstrating the condition of your soul the condition of your heart, your spiritual condition, whether you're lost or whether you're saved, whether you're forgiven or whether you're unforgiven, whether you're justified or whether you're condemned, whether you're a disciple of Christ like Peter or a fake follower like Judas is revealed in the way you hear the word of God. That's the point of this parable. Whether you are in the kingdom, according to verses 10 to 12, or yet outside the kingdom, is determined, is, is revealed on how you respond to or receive the word of God. That's what all the soils do. They're all about what different kinds of hearers. I want to, to understand this and to kind of set us up. We've got to look at the middle section where he's talking to his disciples and those around him. Look at verse 10. He's alone. Uh, they Originally, in verse 1, we're talking to the whole crowd. So the, the parable was for everyone. All the massive crowds that were around him, Jesus is speaking to them. But then, verse 10, he gets alone, and those around him, the 12, uh, are listening. And there's more of an intimate discussion here. And they ask him, it says, about the parables. And it says in verse 11, he says to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything's in parables. I want you to just note right there, he's distinguishing two different kinds of groups. You see that? Two different kinds of groups. To you, you, you my disciples, and you who are listening, you who are hearing by faith, you who are on the inside because you're receiving the word, to you, the secrets of the kingdom of God are being revealed. You're hearing them. You're getting the understanding of the kingdom. But then, he does something that maybe sounds to our modern ears a little harsh and exclusive. He says, but for those outside 
everything's in parables. He makes distinctions. He divides up humanity. Those on the inside that are receiving the unveiling of the kingdom of God and those on the outside who don't get the same revelation. In fact, he speaks in parables. Why? Verse 12, so that they might see but not perceive, that they might hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Is this not a fascinating statement? To some, Jesus is using the parables to reveal the kingdom, and to others, Jesus uses the same parable to hide the kingdom, to conceal it. I'm kind of reminded of two parents talking about something that they don't quite want their kids to hear. You've ever done this if you're a parent? Maybe you're talking about getting ice cream, and you say, hey, what do you think about going to get some I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M? And the kids will go, what are they saying? What does it mean? See, you're revealing something to the one who can hear, and you're concealing something from the ones who can't. That's the purpose of a parable here. Jesus is revealing the kingdom, and he's concealing the kingdom at the same time. You say, why would he do that? Why would he want to withhold from some an understanding of the kingdom that he's been preaching? Well, let me tell you. That, that verse in verse 12, you see that, how it's kind of indented? That means it's clearly a reference to an Old Testament text. What Old Testament text is it? It's Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, to understand why Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, we've got to get a little bit of an understanding of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 comes after Isaiah chapter 5, right? You with me? And Isaiah chapter 5 comes after other chapters in Isaiah that are building a case. What's happening in the first five chapters of Isaiah? Here's what's happening. The prophet Isaiah is pronouncing judgment on the wicked leaders of Judah. That's what's happening. Uh, the, the leaders are so wicked that in chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 20, the prophet Isaiah says this. Hear this. Chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the kind of indictment that the prophet Isaiah is making on the leaders of Judah at that time. And then we come to chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, famously has that picture of God in the heavens. Isaiah sees the, the, the king on the throne. And then God says to Isaiah after this amazing experience, Who's going to go for me? Isaiah says, here I am. And he gets the mission from God. Isaiah is going to be sent out. What's the mission, Isaiah says? Isaiah 6, verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Can you imagine? That's your mission, Isaiah. You're going to go preach. No one's going to hear you. No one's going to understand you. In fact, your message is to blind their eyes. That's what it says. Their eyes are going to get heavy. Their, their eyes will be blinded lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand in their hearts and turn and be healed. What a, what a missionary uh, task for Isaiah to go and preach and to have been told by God that your preaching is not going to awaken, it's going to blind them. Your preaching is not going to cause them to have sight, it's going to remove their sight. 
Your message will be one of condemnation and judgment, not one of revelation and salvation. Why? Because they've already rejected God. The leaders of Judah had already rejected God. They called good evil and evil good. Now, let's move back to Mark chapter 4. What's happening in Mark chapter 4? What did we talk about last week? What did the leaders of Israel say about Jesus? Do you remember? They literally called him possessed by Satan. If there's anything that is the epitome of saying that that which is good and calling it evil, or taking that which is evil and calling it good, it is what the scribes did in chapter 3, verses 22. That's what they were doing. They were taking ultimate goodness, but they were calling it evil. And so Jesus now, in an act of judgment, is going to preach in parables to them so that the revelation of the kingdom is concealed. But for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and have faith to apprehend the message, to them it is the revealing of the secrets of the kingdom of God. You with me? The parables are doing two things at once, revealing and concealing, bringing the message of salvation and concealing so as to judge the leaderships who have already rejected Christ. I believe that this happens wherever the word is preached. I believe that the word of God goes out, and if those who are hearing have ears to hear, the word will be doing great work in them, sanctifying them, helping them, even saving those who receive it by faith. But when it is rejected, when it is ignored, when it is brushed off, the same word that is bringing healing and salvation and sanctification is also at that moment bringing hardening and numbing. It is callousing those who are rejecting it. The same sun that melts the wax will harden the clay. And the same word that goes out to the church when it is received by faith, it will sanctify. When it is rejected, it'll harden. And so this is what's happening. He is giving a message that must be received by faith. The word of God is central here in this discussion, in this parable. And then particularly how you respond to the word of God is revealed in, or uh, your, your soul, I should say, the state of your soul is revealed in how you respond to the word of God. So this has relevance. This has relevance for the way you listen to a sermon. This has relevance for the way you study theology. This has relevance for the way you read your Bible. You will have to read the text here and ask yourself, well, what kind of soil am I? What happens in my life when the word comes to me? When the seed is sown in my own mind, in my own heart? What am I like? How do I listen? So what we're going to do this week and next week, we're splitting this into two messages. And I want to kind of give an overview this morning that kind of gives the big picture applications of this text Next week, we're going to go more specifically into each soil. This week, I just want to consider the reality of what is being communicated to us from Jesus and kind of massage the application out a little bit so we can really reflect on how we ought to hear this section of Scripture. So here's an application point number one after understanding a little bit of what Jesus is doing in these parables. 
Here's number one. Listening to the word is a matter of life and death. Listening to the word is a matter of life and death. You saw that at the end of verse 12, right? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. What he is communicating there is that if we turn and are forgiven upon hearing the word of God, there will be the removal of our sins. If we turn to Christ by faith, we will be forgiven. That is to say that this text is not referring to mature Christians versus immature Christians. It is not referring to fruit-bearing Christians and those Christians who don't bear fruit. It is referring to those who are forgiven versus those who are not forgiven. You see that? Lest they turn and be forgiven. Or you could say in verse 11 that he's talking about the revelation of the secrets of the kingdom. He's referring to either those who are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. In other words, he's talking about eternity, not just whether you bear fruit or not. He's talking about forgiveness of your sins, not just whether you're mature or not. You see, out of the four soils, how many of them are going to be redeemed and in heaven? How many of them are going to be forgiven their sins? One, the last one, the one in verse 20 that's described as the good soil who hears the word and accepts it and bears fruit. The other soils are representative of those who don't actually hear the word. Though they may hear it with their ears, the hearing is an incomplete hearing because it does not result in fruit bearing as demonstrated at the end of the parable. This is a matter of eternal life and death, church. How you hear the word is a matter of life and death. You can think of uh, Mary and Martha. You know that famous story? The two women are there with Jesus, and Martha's all busy doing everything she can to serve around the house. And Mary just sits at the feet of Jesus and is listening to him teach. And what happens? Remember what Martha does? She gets a little frustrated, and she gets frustrated with Mary because Mary's not helping out. And so Martha goes to Jesus and says, why why are you letting her do this, Jesus? Come on, won't you ask Mary to help me out? I'm slaving over here. Got no help. Listen to Jesus' response. Martha, he says, Martha, you are anxious about many things. But one thing, if you're a Bible marker, that would be two words to underline. One thing, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. There's one thing necessary There's one thing you truly need, and what is it? To sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, to hear his word, to understand his teaching. That is the one thing Jesus says is necessary. This is necessary like oxygen is necessary, like eating food is necessary. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The text is not talking about listening to your heart. The text is not talking about getting quiet and trying to hear that still, small voice in your mind. What is being discussed here is the Word of God, the external Word of God that comes to us through the Scriptures that we hear. Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? 
How do you hear the word of God? It's a matter of life and death. Does it fuel your worship? Does it inform your mind? There's a million things you could be doing, like Martha. You could be anxious about all of them, and those anxieties could be choking out your ability to hear the word, just like it was doing for Martha. Are you making time for the most necessary thing in your life to hear the word of God? To ensure that you're listening, not only with your ears, but with your heart? Is the word of God being received and accepted and bearing fruit in your life? When was the last time you heard a sermon and it caused you to praise your God? Or in your private devotions, we're reading scripture and it caused you to confess your sin. When was the last time the word of God so impacted you that you decided to make changes in your life? This is what it means to hear, accept, receive the word of God and to respond the way God intends us. It's a matter of life and death. It doesn't save us as much as it reveals whether or not we're actually saved. Secondly, what we learn from this text is that we ought not to grow tired of listening to God's word. One of the things I uh, experienced in studying this text, I had never really noticed before. It's one of the beauties of spending your time studying scripture for yourself and working hard and trying to observe things and notice things and digging in. And so during this week, one of the things I saw for the first time, maybe I thought about it, but never as in depth as I did this time, was how interesting it is that each soil uh, experiences the word of God for a little bit longer time than the previous one. The first soil, it really doesn't hear the word of God at all. It's like the, the Satan is there, he comes in, and he intercepts the seed before it could ever really be received. That's, uh, that's happening. But second, the second soil, you notice it actually holds on to the seed a little bit longer. You see that? They, they immediately receive it with joy. There's some people, they hear the word and they're like, yes! Amen. I agree. This is great. But then it says they endure for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of that word, immediately they fall away. So they're lasting a little bit longer than the previous one. They, they endure for a little while, the text says, but it, well, as soon as the word's not advantageous to them anymore, they give it up. But the third soil, it seems to last maybe even longer. It says they're sown among thorns, but they grow up. It sounds as if they hear the word and, and they care about the word. It, it doesn't describe the person who is not hearing at all. It's not describing the person who's immediately just falling away. Rather, it's describing someone that's slowly suffocated by the presence of other thorns in life, other cares in life. You see that? The, the, the verse 19, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. They come in and they choke the word. It's really describing someone who has great intentions about the word. Great intentions that never materialize. <laughs> great desires to be a hearer of the word, but it doesn't actually play out in fruit bearing. It's the kind of person that maybe you know, it's the person who claims to know Christ and really claims to, to want to follow Christ and and then these other things come up, these other concerns come up, these anxieties perhaps, these other priorities they have perhaps. 
And then over time, the word of God just kind of becomes less and less valuable, less and less something they are reliant upon. You know, I'm mature. I might not need that as much as I used to. I've grown up a little bit. I'm a more um, godly Christian now than I was back when I used to read the word all the time. I think this is a warning, isn't it? That there are, there's a possibility that people hear the word and go, yeah, this is really valuable. And then as the years go by and the decades go by and the encroaching cares and desires and worries and concerns start to grow into your life to actually choke out the word of God. That is not someone losing a salvation they had. That is being revealed that they didn't actually ever hear the word of God as they were supposed to. Are you paying close attention to your heart? Time is going to reveal whether or not you're hearing the word. You're growing older, we all are, and with your age, are you growing more committed to hearing and applying the word of God? As age increases, is it making you more humble in understanding of your need to feed on the scriptures? Has it sharpened your desire to hear from the living God through his word? Or are there other things that as you grow older that are choking out your hunger for the word of God? Are you thinking that your maturity is causing you to need scripture less? Need to hear less? Need to apply less? You already know that stuff, right? Young men, resolve in your heart to grow old in the word of God and to be an old man that feeds regularly on the scriptures. Be hungry. And young women, resolve in your heart to grow into that old granny who's still taking notes in every sermon and still trying to apply it to their life and still trying to obey and confess sin where sin is exposed. Church, Let's resolve to grow old in the word together to make this scripture the field that we plow and harvest year in, year out, decade in, decade out. I've mentioned before that one of my heroes, one of the men of the past that I admire is a man called George Mueller. In his autobiography, he he wrote that by age 71, he had read his Bible about 100 times. Do the math. That comes out to one and a half times per year. But if you take into consideration that he didn't probably start reading through the Scriptures until he was in his 20s when he got converted, that's even more than one and a half times a year. When he died at age 92... His biographer wrote that he had probably read the Bible 200 times in his lifetime. Do the math. When he recorded at 71 that he had had read 100 times, and his biographer, after his life at 92, 21 years in between, he had read the Bible 200 times. That means 100 times from age 71 to 92. 21 years, read the Bible another 100 times. That comes out to, if you do the math, almost five times a year reading through the entire 
scriptures. You say, how do you get anything done if you're reading the Bible that much? Well, you maybe won't do all the other things that you do with your life. But I would guess that your priorities would be pretty aligned with Scripture, wouldn't they? And you'd probably spend the time you do have investing in the things that really do matter. See, here's an example of a man who grew more hungry with every year. Lord, give me more of yourself this year. Lord, let me understand and apply your word more this year. With every passing year, he hungered more deeply to hear from God rather than what's described as this soil that grows more concerned with the things of the world and the cares of the world choke out the word. Let me ask you, are you growing more cold as the years go by? Do you feel less of a hunger for the word of God? Do you feel that the cares out here are more valuable to give your priority to than the concerns of this revealed scripture? Don't grow cold. Be warned, church. Plead with God for him to light the fires of zeal and passion to hear from him. Do not let the subtlety of the years pass by without you asking the question of your own heart. Am I really hearing him? Am I listening to him? Am I at his feet like Mary doing the one thing that's necessary, hearing and applying the word of God? Here's our third application. First is listening is a matter of life and death. Second is we must not grow tired of listening. Third, beware the dangers or the threats of listening to God's word. You see him right there at the second half of the parable. The first enemy is Satan. Look at that, verse 15. You see that right there? And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Church, you have an enemy. Each individual here needs to wake up to that reality, right? We can so often forget that there really is a spiritual war. And you really do have the enemy who hates you, working against you. He's bigger than you. He's more powerful than you. He's smarter than you. And he hates you. And his number one strategy is to work against you and I by stopping you from hearing and applying the word of God. Do you see that right there in the text? The word goes out. And what is Satan actively trying to do? What's he attempting to do is to snatch that word up right out of your heart, right out of your mind, so you go home and you don't even think twice about it. He wants you distracted. He wants you confused. He wants you to misunderstand it. He wants you to ignore it. He wants you to go home today, turn on that football game, and forget everything you heard at church. He wants you, listen to this, he wants you to have really good intentions because good intentions feel good, don't they? We can pat ourselves on the back as long as we have those good intentions and Satan is totally happy with you having those good intentions so long as they never materialize. He is against you. He is an enemy. And as I studied this week, I couldn't help but start praying for the church and I want to invite you to pray with me. Listen, church, an enemy exists. He hates this, this book. He hates that you're here to hear it. And he is bigger and stronger than us. And we must call upon the power of the Spirit to enable us to really hear. Because it is possible that you hear without hearing. Our second enemy, I'm going to call it this. We're going to see it in verse 17. I'm going to call it second-handing. 
The enemy of second-handing, what's that? Look at verse 7. There's a critical phrase to help us understand the nature of that second soil, the soil that's in the rocky ground. Here's what it says. Uh, the ones who sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, so they're responding with joy. But listen to this, verse 17. And they have no root in themselves. They have no root in themselves. They are living on the borrowed convictions of someone else who actually believes it. They're living off the enthusiasm of someone who's actually following Jesus. They're caught up in the current of other people's genuine love. This would be like the crowds mentioned in chapter 3 who are all excited about Jesus but don't really care to know him very well. There are people who are caught up in second-hand Christianity. I live off your convictions. I live off your loves. I live off your passion. And as soon as those things are removed or eliminated, since I have no root in myself, I fall away. These are the kind of people who leave Christianity as soon as it becomes socially difficult to believe the things the Bible teaches. These are the kind of people who apostatize as soon as their favorite teacher apostatizes because it has nothing to do with their own personal conviction and everything to do with them leeching off the life of other people who actually do believe. They're like tumbleweeds. And as soon as the wind blows one way, they'll be going that direction. They'll go right along with it. Let me ask you this. Are you a second-hand Christian? Is your conviction personal? Is this your own? You believe this about Jesus. And if all the world tells you to go this way, you're going to go that way with Jesus. You're going to listen to his word, even when it's the most unpopular thing to believe. Friends, we're going that way. And if you believe this book, you're going to be increasingly thought of as a bigot, intolerant, unloving individual. We've got to be able to believe and have conviction in and of ourselves. Or as Jesus says, we've got to have the root. We've got to have a root that goes deep into Scripture. We can't live off the convictions of others. Here's our third enemy. The third enemy, uh, whenever we're hearing the word, we're going up against Satan. We're going against the temptation to live off the convictions of someone else. And thirdly, look at this. We already mentioned it a little bit. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. This is verse 19. And desires for other things. The kind of Christian who says, oh, I love Christ. Well, what church do you go to? Well, my kids have baseball on Sundays, and I've been traveling a lot lately. I work pretty late on Saturday nights. And I've always dreamed of having this career so we could live this kind of lifestyle. We'd love to have that kind of house, and so we've got to work a little bit extra. And 20, 30, 50 years go by, and they haven't been in church but all along, they've thought that they loved the Lord because they, at one point in their life, made some sort of profession. You see, it's possible, as mentioned before, that we get choked out. And if we are choked out from the Word of God, it shows that we never really heard it with our hearts and embraced it with conviction. So watch your heart. Watch the drift. Be careful how you listen. The fastest way to become deaf and numb and calloused is to hear without obeying. And that's our last point here. Last application, listen 
for life change. That's our fourth point. Listen for life change. Verse 20. Those that were sown among the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's exuberant amounts of fruit being described here. We'll talk more about that next week. What does he mean here? True hearing, the real biblical kind of hearing, the only kind of hearing that matters, the kind of saving faith always results in hearing that it accepts the word and then what? Bears fruit. You do not want to hear merely for information. You do not want to hear merely for doctrine. We need information. We must have sound doctrine. But if that's the end in and of itself, we are not hearing as we ought because the text says we hear, we accept, and we bear fruit. To accept means not just to agree intellectually with what has been said. It's not that you read the theology and go, yep, check that box, I agree. It's not what he's talking about. To accept it means to appropriate it into your life. To then adjust your life accordingly. To hear, believe, and then do whatever you need to reorient your life according to the reality that's presented in Scripture. You reorient, you repent, you're constantly taking this book, letting it wash over your heart and mind, letting it shape you. You hear it, you accept it, and what happens? You bear fruit. You adjust your life by faith, following the truth, and you walk in obedience, and that is a fruit-bearing life. A Christian that bears no fruit, no such thing, according to this text, because the only one that's hearing it rightly is the one that's bearing fruit. No such thing as a Christian who never bears fruit. Now, the amount of fruit will vary, and God gives different gifts, and God gives different opportunities, and we do not control the amount. Even here, the text talks about different measures of growth or fruit-bearing, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The point, though, that Jesus is making is that all people who hear the word rightly truly bear fruit. So the result of truly accepting the word is to be bearing fruit. You might pass the theology exam, but if you pass the theology exam and you don't bear any fruit, you still actually haven't learned the theology according to Christ. This is what James makes a point about in James chapter 1. Listen to this. Just reflect on this. Maybe this would be one around the lunch table for you all to reflect on, for us all to really think about. Listen to this simple sentence. Here's, here's what he says. Be doers of the word. You've heard this before, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Many of us have heard the, that part. We agree with that. Watch this next part, though. This is the, this is the key. This is the kicker. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see that? What's the quickest way to deceive yourself? It's to hear a great sermon and then not do anything about it. It is to hear some great teaching and to not have it affect the way you actually live. It is to read the word and walk away and forget all about it. It's to listen to that amazing biblical podcast 
and then get busy other things and not ever considering the fact that you have just heard from God's word and must respond appropriately. You want to deceive yourself, then load yourself up with all the teachings of sermons and podcasts and books and the Bible itself. Do it all, but then don't do anything about what you've heard. Don't let it actually convict you. Don't let it actually humble you. Don't let it actually change anything about you. If that's what's happening, the word might actually be hardening you and deceiving you into thinking you are far more mature than you actually are. You do not, according to Jesus, measure maturity by the amount of doctrine you know or the amount of sermons you've heard or the amount of books you've read because at the end of the day, it matters not if it doesn't result in fruit bearing. This is something we all need to really meditate on, that we need to ask ourselves, are we listening for life change, listening to the Scriptures? I think if we want to listen for life change, we really got to take seriously the times we're hearing God's Word. We've got to make sure that all the debris is cleaned out so we can truly hear and respond to Scripture. Our lives can't be so jam-packed with every possible activity so that we're not hearing from God. How are you listening to sermons? How are you listening to God's Word when you study the Bible? How are you listening to the people who speak the truth and love to you? We started by saying that the most important thing in your life, the one thing, the one necessary thing, Jesus would say, that you must not fail at, that we as a church absolutely cannot fail at, is that we must listen to the Word of God. Are we listening, church? Are you listening, Christian? Have you humbled yourself, reoriented your life, cleared away the distractions, and said to God, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I am here. I will do anything to obey your word. The state of your soul is revealed in how you answer that question. Let's pray. So, Lord, we look at this text and we think about this warning that Jesus gives that there are all kinds of people who hear the word but don't hear it. And Lord, we want to humble ourselves right now and ask that you help us to see the times that we hear without hearing. We ask that you would open our eyes to see our ears, to hear our hearts, to receive your word so that we would be like the good soil, and bear much fruit. And I pray that if there's anyone who is in these other categories, being distracted by the enemy, or receiving it without really growing in conviction and belief that is true, or being choked out by the cares of the world, I pray if there's any of us this morning that are in those categories, that you would wake them up Help them to see, draw them to repentance, and give them ears to truly hear. Lord, only you can do that, and we pray you would. In Jesus' name, amen.